Director's Notes Episode 337 Jacko van Dormau The Brand New Testament Welcome to Director's Notes, the podcast dedicated to the what, how and why of independent filmmaking. Here's your host, Marvell. What if God was not only real, but lived in Brussels with his wife and an unknown daughter, spending his time exacting a series of petty and cruel torments on mankind? That's a scenario which award-winning director Jaco van Dormel mines to great comic effect in his fourth feature, The Brand New Testament. And I'm really happy to introduce Jacko to the podcast this week. Welcome to Director's Notes, Jacko. Hi, hi, Mabel. We always start things the same way around here, and that's to um, find out a little bit more about you with the question, what is it that brought you to filmmaking and directing in general? Because I know, um, you know, you direct outside of film as well. Oh, uh, hard to say. Uh, chance, probably. It's something I decided very early. I, when I was 12 years old, I wanted to make a photography of animals, you know, and then I decided to make films about animals, you know, uh, zoological films, but I never did any. I just studied cameras and directing, and I worked with actors in theater, then actors in front of the camera, and, and I started to make short films, and uh, film school and short films for 10 years, and then a first long one, and this is my first long feature film after something like 20, took me 25 years to make the four films, so I think when I will be older, I can show the, the whole thing to my grandchildren in one little afternoon, and, <laughs> and pro- probably they will ask, what else did you do, granddad, and I will say, nothing, you know, nothing, it takes times. <laughs> Yeah, because looking at your career, uh, you start off, well, in fact, you continue fantastically, but your graduating short was nominated for the uh, the Student Academy Awards, which is one of the best starts ever. And I'm curious as to, you know, that's a dream beginning to a career. If you saw the effects of that, you know, straight away in the work that you were able to pursue throughout your career. Yeah, I was very lucky at the beginning. I thought it was normal, you know, you, you make a short film, so you have an Academy Award, then you make another and I made my first long feature and I had the Camerador in Cannes and I thought it was normal. It's after a while I, I realized I was really lucky because it's, it doesn't happen so often. But it's it's great when it happens at the beginning. It's easier to make films, you know. I think every film that is a success is, is like a free ride. You have a free ride after that. When it's not a success, you have to climb the whole mountain again. What, therefore, would you put down to the amount of time that it normally takes you in between films? A Brand New Testament was relatively quick for you, um, two and a half to three years. But there's normally this long gap in between your, well, definitely your features anyway. So is that just your working process or is it your interests in other areas such as theatre that slow down the film production? No, I'm a slow writer. My last film was co-written with Tomagunzik and it was really quick for me. It took less than a year to write it, nine months, something like that. But for my other films, I wrote them alone and writing alone is a long, long, long process for, for, me. for me. It takes me between three years and six years to, to write a script or to rewrite script. Yeah. Was that part of the reason that you wanted to co-write this time? How did that come about and how did the initial idea for the Brand New Testament generate? 
Oh, the general idea, the first idea, um, I don't know where, where it came from. We sit in the garden for one summer, uh, every afternoon with Thomas, you know, uh, trying to find ideas. And one of the first ideas was God exists, he lives in Brussels. And I think it became a comedy because we were two and we tried to make each other laugh, you know, and uh, and God has a daughter. And and at a moment in Paris, at that, the same moment, there were the the marches against wedding for everybody, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that was pretty crazy. And the end, uh, at the editing, it was the moment of uh, the um, uh, Charlie Hebdo in, in, in Paris too. So, so the film was really made between these two crazy moments. And probably the film has to do something with, it's not a film about religion, it's more a film about, about power, the power that religion can give, also about domination, domination of male and female, domination that can exist in, in politics, in, in religion, in a family, in a couple. And so and the proposition of God's daughter is totally different. She says, uh, God says you have to obey, otherwise there will be a punishment. And the daughter says there will be no punishment. You just do what you want and love who you want. You, know? you and Thomas had actually worked together um, in a writing capacity on your theatre show, um, Kiss and Cry. Did that writing relationship differ from the way that you approached writing the Brand New Testament? Oh, the Brand New Testament was written already before. Oh, okay. It was finished after, but the most uh, important part was written before. But by making this this Kiss and Cry uh, show that is a sort of ephemeral film, a film made on stage with nearly nothing, it's a a film that is made on the table of a kitchen. It helped me to rewrite scenes to make a sort of cheaper film with less money and with more freedom in a way. Uh, by example, when, when it was written camping in Spain in the 60s, and I saw how much it cost to recreate a, a camping in Spain in the 60s, yeah, I just decided to put some toys in the sand and to write camping in Spain, you know. And so it's not the reproduction of the reality, it's just a storytelling. We are in the storytelling, it's, it's more poetic in a way and much cheaper. <laughs> and so it was possible to put the money in more important things. A key point that happens in the film um, that we haven't mentioned so far is when um, God's daughter, Ea, releases all the death dates, a lot of action stems from that. How did that affect the various character motivations and therefore the type of disciples and apostles that she then recruits to make the 12 up to 18. It wasn't the, the idea that came at the very beginning, but when it came, it was really the center of the film because it's it's mostly a film about if you would know how much years you have to live, what would you do with your life? You know, Would we continue to live like immortals or would we realize the most precious thing we have is the minutes that we have to live. That was the most interesting thing. And it's also something that browses the structure of the film because it's a, it's a sort of non-linear structure. It's a, I like to make films that ask questions but don't give answers. But I think in the structure of the narration, there is a sort of experience uh, for the audience uh, that gives a feeling. And that's the most important. If you make a film in three acts, classical, and waiting for the end, uh, will the bomb explode or not? Will the president of the United States be killed at the end or not? You know, you are waiting for the scene after, that you're waiting, waiting for the end. And in life, you never wait for the end, you know. <laughs> you know what will be the end. Uh, so I'm looking for structures that gives more importance to the present time. 
in Mr. Nobody, it was a structure that was splitting like a tree instead of focusing. And in this, it's more sort of episodic structure like Don Quixote or like uh, the manuscript found in Saragossa or Alice in Wonderland. At the moment, you don't know where the film will end finally. You are not waiting for the end. You are just in the moment, in the scene, in, in the minute that is just happening. And that's the center of the film. At the moment, the characters know how much minutes or how much days or years they still have to live. Every minute is precious and every moment is precious. And they, they don't do bullshit anymore. You know, most of the time they don't work anymore. But even while we're in a scene, um, something that I've, um, well, I'm not the first one at all to notice it in your work. You do things where you will play with um, alternative paths in the scene. You know, you've been doing that way back from your first film, from Toto the Hero. And today I was looking again at uh, Mr. Nobody, what that happens, you know, when he's running for the train and he makes the train and he doesn't make the train. And so it kind of feels that you continue playing with the scenes and the structures of the scenes, even while you're filming them, you know, whereas that kind of alternative of should a scene end this way and should the character go down this path, that for most other filmmakers is something that seems to get locked down in the script stage of filmmaking, whereas with you, you play with it throughout. Yeah, but I think the process of storytelling is always what would happen if and what would happen if, you know, and, and sometimes both are interesting, you know. And sometimes in a story, choosing the two possibilities is, is interesting. It exists in video games. In video games, you can take the door or left and take the door right another time, you know, and try both. Something that you cannot experience in life. You cannot compare what it would have been if, if something else did happen. But in a, in a story, you can make this experience. And probably uh, stories are about that, about uh, sort of consolation that we have only one life and in, in story we can have an infinity of lives. The repeated motifs that we see in your work, such as a washing machine or planes, is that something that you're conscious of at the time of creating the pieces and has a larger meaning in your body of work? Or is it after you've um, finished a film, you look back and go, oh yeah, I, you know, that came from an earlier film and I put that in? No, no. All my films, I always think I will try to make a film that doesn't have anything to do with the precedent films. And when it's done, I realize it resembles a lot, you know. Yeah, sometimes things come back. The washing machine came through because there was a washing machine in Total the Hero when he says, my brother is born in a, in a washing machine. That's why he's funny. Yeah. And after that, the mental handicapped actor that I was working with made some pictures where they are born from a washing machine, going out of the washing machine. And it, this was an idea that I reused in this for the tunnel. That is, it's a little bit of tunnel like Alice in Wonderland, you know, yeah. uh, between two worlds and between one, the washing machine in God's apartment and the, the washing machine in the laundry. And also visually, it's, it's great. You brought together a fantastic cast. A lot of them, I know, were personal friends of yours before and you just hadn't worked on screen with them before. However, a revelation is Pili Groiner's um, Aya, God's daughter. Where did you discover her? Looking through her IMDb, I noticed that she was in um, the Dardens Two Days and One Night. So I wonder if you found her from there. I, I met her already before by friends when she was something like six or seven years old and playing piano in front of people without being shy at all. And so that's the first time I met her. And after that, friend says, you know, she made a short part in the film and she was very good. And I made uh, the audition with her and she was really fantastic from the start. You know, she has the, this sort of intelligence of feelings that a kid can have uh, even when he, he's 10. She was 10 when we made the film. 
And at the moment, I was asking her to look with more, with more, and I, I didn't find the word. And she said, with more determination, you mean? And at that moment, of course, I understood that she understood everything. Did you write the additional roles of the disciples specifically for the actors who, as I mentioned before, are your personal friends? No, I, I never write for actors because uh, if I write for an actor and he can't do it because he's not free or doesn't want to do it, uh, it's very hard to find somebody else. So I write for people I don't know, you know, it can be imagining people from my family or friends, but I try not to imagine a specific actor. But at the moment when he said, yes, I will do the film, then I rewrite it for him. I recut the dialogues and recut the scenes so that he, he becomes indispensable. How do you prepare beforehand? Do you do a lot of rehearsal? No, I don't rehearse a lot. Uh, I just make a lecture with all the actors to rewrite the text so that if something is not good in their mouth, if they want to change some word or if they don't feel comfortable with something it's possible to speak about before and, and to rewrite it with the words that that actor usually uses in his own life. No, I rehearsal more the camera, you know. I think the camera movements, the camera work is as important as uh, is acting, like, like an actor. So uh, with my DOP, Christoph Bukan, we go in every set, imagine everything we can do for every scene without deciding totally what it will be until we have uh, everything on the set. But it, it gives already sort of how the camera will dance. Uh, you know, I think directing an actor is one thing, but I think the camera is a part of directing an actor and the music is a part of directing an actor and the set and the light and because everything dances with the actor. Even if you see only the face of the actor, you know, 20 people around are dancing with him. And it's easier for an actor to be a good actor if he had just has to make his own work, if he doesn't have to tell the story, if he doesn't have to explain the script, if the camera is moving and he can just do little things that he feels, you know. Yeah. It's easier for him. There's a beautiful symmetry in most of your setups here. How did you arrive at deciding that that was the style that you wanted to employ this time around? I think that all my films have a little bit of the same style. And it's something I, I found really early in, in the 80s with a short film called A Periculosus Porgersi. That was 12 minutes films about two possible lives of a kid running after a train. It's about the perception of reality and about how we think. What I like in, in the cinema is it's the art that is probably the most close to the way we think. In a film, like when we think, we can jump from one scene to another by association. Uh, we can jump from the past to the future, from one place to another very quickly and associate things. It's also about the perception of reality more than the recreation of reality. You know, since cinema exists, there is always the two ways. The brother Lumière who says, believe me, this is your reality. It looks like a reality, and it is a reality. And there is Melies who says, don't believe me, we are in a dream, it's fantasy. And in between, there is a line that's very interesting. That is, it's not a reality, and it's not the imagination. It's just a perception of reality. So that it doesn't look real, but it looks like the perception we could have of the reality. That can be simpler, that can be more photographic, where time goes by in a different way. That's the thing that fascinates me in, in the cinema. It's the way it can not describe the reality, but describe the perception the character can have of the reality. There are some simply astounding effect shots in um, the Brand New Testament. Were any of those particularly difficult to achieve? And how did you 
mitigate the pain of um, post-production by the way that you approach shooting it on set? Oh, I had a friend and very good special effects uh, director called uh, Emilien Lazaron. He was on the set every time we had to do something with his computer on his knees and he, he was trying to see if it worked and so we could really see it directly on the set, how it is. That gives a lot of freedom, of course. What did you shoot with then? Did you shoot digitally as opposed to 35? Yeah, yeah. This is my first film that is shot digitally and I, I love it. I love it. Which camera did you use? Uh, Sony F66. Of your feature film work, this is the first film that has been scored by someone other than your brother who unfortunately died several years ago. Mm-hmm. How was that relationship that you had with um, Anne Pirelli, Definitely. who was your composer this time round? I asked her because I loved her music. She's a singer, she's a composer and singer, but already there were some teams in her songs that were really fantastic themes for, for a film. And that's the reason why I went to see her. She started composing on the script. So I had already, when we were shooting, uh, four or five main themes that existed and could give the, the tempo uh, of the scene. Often during the, the shooting, during the weekends, I tried to edit some parts and put some music so then we were editing with the music so music wasn't done after the editing did you share any music with um your actors the reason that i'm asking that is we've got those gorgeous scenes where aya listens to each character's music so i'm wondering if that's something that you shared with them ahead of time yeah because the music that she hears were already in the script mm-hmm. most of the time it's yeah, classical music so opera or baroque or old songs but that gives to the character something uh, huge and, and great, you know, the new apostles are magnificent losers. They think their life has passed by, that love is not for them, happiness is not for them. They spend the whole life in the, the waiting room of the happiness. And the music is in contrast with that. The inner music is huge, like opera, like baroque music. So in the inside they are huge, from the outside they seem grey and, and little. The Brand New Testament premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, which must feel like home to you now with your films, and was also um, the Belgian submission for um, the Academy Awards. So obviously it's been well received, but what have the personal reactions been? Because instantly you watch the film and you think, well, what would I do with my time? So I'm wondering how some of those interactions have been for you with people who've seen the film. Yeah, it's, it's always a miracle when people like it. I, I never know it in advance. I make films like dropping message in a bottle. I never know if somebody will read it and what the reaction will be. And I'm always surprised. So if it doesn't work, I'm surprised. If it works a lot, I'm surprised too. And it's, it's very strange because, you know, Cannes, these festivals are, it's a little bit like uh, the contrast between a crowded restaurant and an empty restaurant. Everybody wants to be in the crowded restaurant imagining that the food will be great because everybody goes in that. And more there are people in the crowded restaurant, more the people are waiting for entering it. And in the empty restaurant, nobody enters because it's empty. So uh, it's, it's a little bit the same with films. You know, At the moment, something happens and everybody wants to, to see the film. And there are other films that are great and nobody wants to see them because nobody sees it. It's this sort of strange thing. And I personally, I made both, you know, Mr. Nobody was commercially a disaster. I think it's my biggest success personally, but, uh, uh, and I think I can't do better, but um, on a commercial point, it's a disaster and, and this one works really well. I made both. I was a cook in the crowded restaurant and in the empty restaurant and it was the same food. <laughs> <laughs> 
So it's always, always strange, you know, and unpredictable. What are you planning next? Are you currently in the midst of um, working on a new theatre production? Yeah, I just finished uh, a theatre production in, in December. Cold Blood, it, it's another ephemeral film. We will play at the Barbican in London too. It's just the kind of film we made on the stage. Well, nothing is filmed in advance. Everything is done on the stage directly. It's a one hour, 20 minutes long feature film where the cameraman is streaming for one hour, 20 minutes and the focus puller is pulling his focus for one hour, 20 minutes. So it's something that never arrives on, on a film, but it's very, it's very fun to do. And it's instead of three or four years for a film, it takes three months to, to improvise, uh, do it and write it and to be able to play it in a theater. And it's fun because it's very collective. And do you have any other film projects that are um, making no, not, your way? No, not, not for the moment. Not for the moment. When I finish, it's like uh, having a baby, you know, and I'm still in the hospital with the baby. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think to the next one immediately. Between the films, I always need to have uh, three or four months doing nothing. It's, it's a great job doing nothing. I could be professional, but uh, it's at the moment where I do nothing that ideas come. It's never when I work a lot. So. Yeah. Jacko, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a delight to see the brand new Testament and I'd somehow missed some of your earlier films. So it made me then backtrack and go through your entire back catalogue and I'm now a lifelong fan. So um, it was a great pleasure to talk to you today. Oh, thank you so much, Marble. It was a pleasure for me too. To get show notes for this episode or post a comment, visit us at directorsnotes.com. Director's Notes is released on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 license. All other materials remain the property of our guests. Support the show by telling a friend, blogging about us, or leaving a review in iTunes. Every year, there are hundreds of great films of all types from around the world that don't get the exposure they deserve. It's our job to make obscurity a thing of the past, one film at a time.